Dakota kid who, you know, star quarterback for the Eagles who did something bad to my Minnesota Vikings, but I'm not going to complain about that. I'm not talking about Carson Wentz. I'm talking about Wentz with a C, as in the word that, it's a word that the church used for ages, and I don't know what word you use in the second article of the Apostles' Creed when you get to that point, but for, for decades, for probably centuries, it's a word that we used in the church a, a lot to talk about, to confess about the source and certainty of Jesus' imminent return, about the return of Christ. Now, I don't think we talk about that as much as maybe we did in an earlier time in the church. But right there at the end of the second article of the Apostles' Creed, for ages we have confessed, uh, those of you that have gone through confirmation class, maybe, just maybe, uh, and if you haven't, that's fine, maybe, just maybe, you'll remember that we talk about five stages of Jesus' humiliation. And it starts off, we say in the second article, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, first stage of humiliation, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead and buried. Five stages of humiliation. And then matching those five stages of humiliation in the second article of the Apostles' Creed, we talk about the five stages of the exaltation of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And and I know that you remember this from your confirmation. Is right? Question 193. This is most certainly true, right? The question is, what are the five stages in the exaltation of Christ? And, and the first one is kind of one that catches us off guard because it's, he descended into hell. That's exaltation? Yes, because it wasn't for punishment. It was really proclamation. It was almost a, a victory lap that he had defeated sin, death, and the devil. Descended into hell triumphantly, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and... Can you help me? Whence? Thank you, Early. Whence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Whence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe that. Right? We, we, we believe that Jesus is coming back. Right? We still believe whence. Maybe we don't hear, as I said, as much anymore about the imminent return of Jesus. Uh, it, it struck pretty deeply in me about a year and a half ago. I was, I was traveling uh, in uh, some of our churches in Canada and Saskatchewan. And one seasoned elder of the church, and he wasn't complaining at all. He just commented to me, he said, it's been a decade since I have heard a sermon about the return of Jesus Christ. And, and, and maybe it, it belonged to kind of a revivalistic uh, a past that we maybe even use scare tactics in movies and movies and, and, and whatnot to try to kind of herd people into the kingdom by, by scare tactics like Christian scary movies. But nevertheless, Scripture talks extraordinarily. Jesus talks incredible amount about his certain imminent return. Imminent. Could happen any time. Whence? Whence? Last October, I, and, and I bring this up because I think sometimes in the church, we can get lost in the decades and centuries of the church just being itself. Last October, we celebrated a pretty important event in the life of, of the Protestant church, the quincentennial of the Reformation, a 500-year uh, observance of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door at, at, at Wittenberg. 500 years is a long time, and, and, and we kind of get caught up in it's like the church has been here forever. It's been here 500 years. It's been here 2,000 
a, a years. And it's like nothing, you know, we just kind of keep going on. And, and, I, and I ask you, do we still believe that while we can celebrate 500 years of faithfulness, 2,000 years of faithfulness, God's faithfulness to the church for those long, gaping periods of time, that God is also faithful in these five minutes. And that in God's faithfulness, it's true. Before the end of this service, Jesus could return. We are asked and called upon. Part of our, part of our proclamation of faith is to believe in the absolute possibility that Jesus could return at any time. And we believe that, right? Whence? Whence? So with that backdrop, uh, I want to lead you into a scripture today. I, I know, you know, we count long periods of time. We count quincentennials. Uh, we recount and debate about millennia. We'll, we'll argue and debate about uh, end times, uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, and have different positions on that all, all the time. But, but somehow in the middle of that, do we discount this idea of the, the imminence of Jesus' return? Whence? That he could come back anytime. And so I'd like to turn our attention uh, to Luke chapter 12, to a parable, uh, a story that Jesus told uh, there, starting with verse 35. It's printed in your bulletin. Uh, I won't read uh, the, the whole works at, at first, um, but I'll, I'll read the first uh, five or six verses. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, he gave us this imagery. He said, be dressed, and you'll hear some repeated words in here, be dressed ready for service. And keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them. Here's the word again. Ready. Even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be, what does the word say? Ready. A third time. A prominent word. You also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The word of the Lord. Whence? Jesus, I don't, I don't have a particularly ornate uh, outline here. It's a pretty simple uh, affair today. Uh, but the first thing I want to tell you from these verses is that here Jesus simply tells us that being ready is our calling. As a matter of fact, readiness is, is a corollary to the notion of faith. It is, it, is, it is almost a replacement word for faith is the New Testament concept of readiness. That goes hand in hand with faith in Jesus Christ is readiness Readiness is a synonym of faith. It's, it's just kind of a matter-of-fact language here used to describe the activity and status of servants of the master. They are dressed. They are ready for service. They have their lamps burning. They are waiting. They are watching. It's like it's the one plain thing that servants are to be. They are called to be while their master is away. If, if nothing else, they are called to be ready for the master's return. And it doesn't make any difference what other servants are doing, what the world is, is, is doing, what the preoccupation, uh, what, what the gifts or, or occupation, preoccupation of other servants of the master. A servant's responsibility, opportunity, 
confession of faith was to be ready for the master's return. Simple. Not so simple in living it out, but simple in concept. Ready. The original language uh, has an emphatic voice here. It's almost like a, uh, an implied, amplified uh, a reading. There's, there's kind of an exclamation a, a, a point, the way that the, the Greek verbs are, are formatted. It's almost as if we could read it. You, you, almost like repeated, regardless of others, be dressed and ready. You, you keep your lamps burning. It's not extraordinary. It's who the servant is, ready. How many of you have ever been invited to a surprise party of, of some kind? Can I see your hands? Some kind of surprise party. Most of us have. Birthday party, retirement party, some, you know, something where you know, there's, a, there's an element of surprise there. And it goes a lot of preparation into We get so excited about it, we put potluck in the bulletin twice. I mean, we, we like our parties, right? Okay, so you know, we, we're invited to this surprise party. And if you've accepted an invitation to go to a surprise party, it probably means that you've got all preparation involving clothes, food, travel, timing, certainly. You've got to, be, you've got to have yourself ready ahead of this surprise, you know, coming of the guest of honor, right? But the one thing over, over all to be concerned about for a surprise party is that you're there ready for the person to uh, arrive. You can do all the other preparation and, you know, you're supposed to be hiding behind the couch and the lights off and the balloons ready, whatever, and the, you know, you know horns to sound or whatever. You, you have all the preparation done, but it's, it's a, you know, it's a lost proposition if the person comes in, flips the light, and the people are watching TV, and we miss the surprise. This story of Jesus talks about how servants are to be ready, and the images of the parable are helpful. In verse 35, it says, be dressed, ready for service. Um, maybe you know this, but in Jesus' time, servants, like other people, uh, wore these robes that would go you know, down to the ankles, down, down to the ground, uh, long flowing robes. But the distinguishing mark of a servant apart from people who weren't servants was, do you, you know what, have you ever heard this before? Uh, the thing that marked them, you could tell who a servant was walking down the street because the servant's long flowing robe would be pulled up and tucked into the kind of the, the sash or the, the hem around the waist um, and it would be brought up. So it was more like a, a mini robe or something like that. I don't, I don't know what to call it, but it was, a, it was a sign or a signal that this was a servant. And the reason they tucked their robe up the bottom of their robe and tucked it into their, their waistline was that it signified that here was a person ready to serve, able to, be, to move unencumbered to serve the person that they serve. They could get down on their knees. They could wash feet. They, could, you know, they were more mobile. They weren't going to trip over their robe in the process of getting ready to serve. This was the sign. And a question this parable asks us kind of symbolically is, how are you dressed? How's your life and your schedule and your thoughts and your passions and your avocations? How's your, how's your budget and your debt and, and, and your addictions or, or, or your commitments? How is your life dressed? Are you dressed unencumbered so that when the, the master returns, you and your life, you're ready to meet him. Are you dressed as a servant or are you kind of burdened down? Are you tripping over yourself? Are you tripping over a relationship? Are you tripping over worry? Are you tripping over a pursuit that might not belong in your life? We go down a few verses later in Luke chapter 12. We, we see very quickly three marks of a person or a church 
and, and, and just kind of mark my words here, who is becoming increasingly unprepared for Jesus' return. Three marks of a person or a church who is increasingly becoming unprepared for the master's return, for Jesus' return. Very quickly, verse 45 says, but suppose the servant says to himself, and, and, and maybe you can hear yourself say this when you think about waiting for Jesus' return. My master is taking a long time in coming. Those of you that have been believers for a decade or several, it's true, isn't it, that you've heard about Jesus' imminent return for a long time. Sometimes we can get to the point where in our hearts or coming out of our mouths, we are saying or, or thinking, man, it's taking a long time for Jesus to return. Sometimes we look out at conditions of our community or our nation or our world and say, oh, Maranatha, you know, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's, my master is taking a long time in coming. Here are three marks. The first one is a dulling disbelief in the imminent return of Jesus. One of, in other words, one of the essential traits of faith is expectancy, and one of the essential traits of unbelief is a waning expectancy, is an unexpectancy. Lord, I believe, and I expect your return. Help my unbelief and my unexpectancy. In some cases, the church kind of becomes like a business on the brink of bankruptcy. You know what a business on the brink of bankruptcy is? A, it doesn't expect any new customers and it never expects the boss to stop by. You know, a business on the brink of bankruptcy just never thinks that there's going to be accountability that the boss is ever going to come by and it doesn't expect any new business. The church in many places kind of becomes that Mark of a dulling disbelief of, man, the master is taking a long time. Maybe he's not coming back. Maybe we can just kind of close up shop. Maybe all the sacrifice and commitment, what we, we do as the church is rather meaningless, that, that my neighbor's eternal salvation, maybe this whole afterlife thing is, is a ruse. It's, it's part of a creeping unbelief that comes into the church. A second mark of an increasingly unprepared person or church for the return of Jesus, we see further in verse 45, So this servant says, my master's taking a long time in coming. And he then begins, it's interesting how that thought is connected to the next one. And he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants. You see that the the lack of expectancy of the master's soon return opens a door for the mistreatment of fellow servants. They go totally, they're total corollary things. And an unexpectancy of the master's return goes hand in hand with kind of an abusive neglect of a fellow servant. So the second mark of a person or a church increasingly unexpected of Jesus' return is unresolved conflict between servants. People with a lessening expectation for Jesus' return are more likely to beat each other up than to prepare one another for the master's return. I don't know if I need to say more on this. I think you sense it's true that a church or a family embroiled in conflict would not allow itself to continue in that path if they believed greatly that Jesus could come back at any time. I would not comfortably go on a day or a week or a month 
or hold on to a, a, a bitterness or a, a, a rival uh, a thought or a, a kind of a, a nurtured hurt um, among the servants. I would not be the cause of that hurt or be the cause of that hurt and, and go on without making it right if I thought Jesus could come back this afternoon. It just They don't go in hand. One of the marks of an unexpected church is the allowance for inappropriate relationships and a mistreatment of fellow servants to go on. A third mark of an increasingly unprepared person or church for the return of Jesus that we see in this description, also in verse 45, look at it, the servant says to himself, man, master, Jesus has taken a long time to return, begins to beat his fellow men servants and, 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 and maidservants. And then third, it says, it's an interesting line, and to eat and drink and get drunk. Now, servants need their daily bread, right? Every servant needs to eat and drink um, enough, right? But there's an inference here that the, the mindset of the servant, the one with his robe, her robe, brought up, hemmed, you know, caught up in the sash around, around the waist, ready, and, ready to serve, ready to serve one another, ready to serve the master when he returns. Somehow the orientation of the mindset of the servant turns from servant to consumer, even an abusive consumer. And beyond daily bread, the focus of this servant goes to, man, my master's taking a long time return, begin to inappropriately treat and, and, and allow for there to be these relationships with fellow servants that are wrong, and then to eat and drink and go past daily bread to the point of, of getting drunk. Uh, it's a picture. It's not saying, again, that a servant shouldn't have daily bread, but it's a picture of a shift in attitude and identity that has occurred, that the one called by title and purpose to serve and to be ready to serve now is expecting to be served himself or herself. The third mark of a servant's ownership of the, the mission here is that that mission is overtaken by this consumerist expectancy of privilege. That rather than being focused on being ready to serve the master and ready to serve one another to prepare my fellow servant to be ready, now it's about my wants, my desires, my consumption. The servant's main job of being ready for the master's return has been overwhelmed with a sense of what's in it for me. And how do I get the things that I want? People, there is no room for consumerism in an expectant church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul affirms believers who he says, and, and listen to the two things that the Apostle Paul, the two dots that he connects here. He says they have turned from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You see, there's something about serving and, and waiting that always goes together. There's something about serving and waiting that always goes together. Jesus tells us that readiness is our calling. And then he tells us that his return is all about surprise in several shocking ways. According to the text, there's going to be one kind of surprise. We, we read in verse 46, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he is not aware of. And so why do we always have to have voices out there trying to predict when Jesus is going to return? I mean, can, can we give that up? We're told time and again in the scripture, we won't know the precise time. We're just called to be ready. It's going to be a surprise. But he also says there's going to be a second kind of surprise, and it's going to be a catastrophic surprise. 
He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. It's this parable's figurative language uh, description of hell. And one of the sobering images of this text is that of a servant, of a person who is known to be part of the household, uh, of a person who's been recognized by other servants to be in the household, who at the master's return is going to find himself on the outside when everybody thought he or she was on the inside. And I ask you, do we still believe that it is possible for a person thought to have been a believer, even a person who has been a believer, to revoke their faith and to no longer believe? This text, this picture says there are going to be people who are thought to be on the inside of the master's household who are not. Be ready. Here is one unready, and and we still believe that exists. The sign to place with the unbelievers, the language of hell, this parable soberly infers a whole lot of people who thought they were in are going to find themselves out. But there's a third surprise here as well. The timing of his return will be surprise. There'll be a surprise as to actually who's in and out of the household. But there's a third surprise that I think is beyond all the surprises put together. If you go back to verse 37 and 38, they both begin with this line, it will be good for those servants. It will be good for those servants. Jesus tells us readiness is our calling. He tells us his return is an absolute surprise. But then Jesus tells us upon Jesus' return, there's going to be this incredible 180 shift that occurs that catches all the servants off guard. Didn't see this one coming. It's the little gospel twist here at the end of this parable. And I just love it. Did you catch it when I read it? I tried to read it kind of fast. I slipped past it. wonder if you caught it. There's this incredible surprise. All of the focus is on the readiness of the servants for the master's return, inferring when the, master's, when the master comes, what's going to happen? The servants are going to serve the master is what we'd expect, right? At a surprise party, when the honored guest comes through the door, we shower our gifts and our, you know, our pats on the back and our hugs and our happy birthday song on the guest of honor, right? I mean, that's the direction of the service, right? Isn't that what we expect? But in this story, what matters most What happens when the master returns, the focus is not. For everything that's been said about servants be ready, the focus is not on the servant serving the master. The focus is not on the the gifts and the foot washing and the presence that the servants give the master. But there's this gospel flip that when the master arrives... He serves the servants. Did you catch this sublime, profound, paradoxical part of this parable? We're all waiting behind the couch to jump out and say surprise and, and, and you know, just lather on Jesus all of our love and our praise songs and our tithing and our spiritual gifts and and, 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 and of course, all that appropriate, we're just, we're just going to love and honor on the honored guests, but in the parable... It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve. Do you know what that means? The master. The owner of the business. The CEO. Is going to take the bottom hem of his robe. And he's going to pull it up and he's going to tie it. 
tie it in a sash around his waist so he is unencumbered. He will dress himself to serve. He will have them, the servants, recline at the table. And he will come and wait on them. It will be good. Did, did anybody just catch a mental picture image of something that happened, I think we celebrated a week or two ago, called Monday Thursday? When Jesus seats his disciples, his followers around a, a, a table, and what happens there, he rolls up his, he pulls up his robe and gets down on his knees and goes from servant from disciple to disciple and washes the feet of the disciples. And we call it Monday Thursday. It's mandatum. It's, you know, as you've seen me, love and serve you, so love, love each other. He takes his own, he predicts his own death, and he serves bread and wine to his disciples, predicting a, a, a picture of his body and blood shed for us that we celebrate every time we take communion. There's this incredible gospel shift that occurs here. The, the world is, is, is set on its head. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready. Because what matters most when Jesus returns, while all of us, while you are called to be ready in faith for his return, what matters most at that time will not be your gifts to the master, but it will be his gift of life, his body, his blood, his washing of you. Amen? And so the surprise of those who thought they were in, on the inside of the household but now find themselves on the outside assigned to the place of unbelievers will only be exceeded by the surprise of the servants who have faithfully, Calvary, Bergenfield, faithfully for, for years decades. You know, a long time Calvary Bergenfield has been faithful, waiting, dressed, ready for service, watching, tending the lamp of faith. The, the surprise will be exceeded by this surprise that Calvary Bergenfield and all other believers who now at Jesus coming just as at the Last Supper, instead of calling his servants to come surround and serve him, Jesus will serve you. He will wash you. He will enfold you. He will feed you of his own body and blood. He will, he will nurture you not unto drunkenness, but unto eternal life. He will, he will feed you and clothe you and wash you. The, the question this parable kind of entices and asks, are you ready? And then at this turn, it says, guess what? Jesus is ready. Jesus is absolutely ready to save you. Jesus is absolutely ready to wash you from your sins, to cleanse you and clothe you and enfold you in his family for eternity. He will dress himself to serve. He will roll up the hem of his glorious robe and tuck it in his belt. He will wash his head to toe. He will serve us. He will serve us a meal of life. He will make us lie down in rest and peace at his table. He himself will serve us. The gospel of this parable is not a command that you must be ready. You must be ready. That's law. But the gospel is that Jesus is ready now to save you. And even in this moment, before his reappearing, whether that's in five minutes, five years, or 50, he stands ready to come and give you the gift of faith to save you and prepare you for his coming.
Are you ready? Jesus offers you the gift of faith to be ready. Will you pray with me? And as you pray with me, when I say amen, I'm going to start the second article of the Apostles' Creed. And if you know it, I'm going to ask you to stand and confess it with me. And it begins, as, as you remember, I believe in Jesus Christ as only Son, our Lord. And it ends, and I'd like us to use the word whence. Lord Jesus, you know our hearts, and you know that a lot of us have been waiting a long time, and some of us have been waiting a short time, and some of us maybe aren't waiting at all. We're just investigating here, and that's, that's great that all here are under the hearing of your word and the offering of repentance and faith of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you make us a people of faith, that you make us servants ready for your return, confident that you are coming back, desiring with, with all of our lives to be, be ready for you to, to serve one another well, to not uh, allow there to be consumerism or conflict that, that kind of violates the, the posture of faith, of, of readiness for an imminent return of you but also ones who believe that it's never, ever our preparation that saves us. That when you, Lord Jesus, the Master, returns, you will clothe us and wash us and feed us and bring us home. Lord Jesus, make us ready. And now I ask you, Calvary, Bergenfield, if this is your faith, if you'll stand with me and confess Faith in this coming Jesus, using the word whence, confessing together just the second article of the Apostles' Creed. Are you ready? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, whence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Amen.